Welcome to Podcast 42, the podcast that talks about life, the universe, and everything. Get down, ship. Well, a few guests still hanging around the desert lair after the last show packed with monster movies. Nothing a rolled up newspaper cannot resolve. Okay, before I kick things off actually, a big congratulations to Percy and Ginny. Well, they've arrived at their new home. If you know, you know. <laughs> actually, some of the subjects from the last episode about monsters in the movies also reminded me of another topic that's always fascinated me as a kid. The world of the bizarre and unexplained. From mysterious sea monsters and mountain men to the unexplained goings on above us in the sky and the universe in general. I have a feeling this episode is going to bounce around an awful lot on a few different tangents, that's for sure. I used to love shows like Yorkshire Television's Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, subsequently followed up by Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers in 1985, and Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious Universe in 1994. This featured UFOs, Sasquatches, sea monsters, unexplained phenomena and the like. And that's what I'm going to talk about this episode. But before I go off on that tangent, don't forget to visit, like and subscribe to the Criscuit YouTube channel, C-H-R-I-S-C-U-I-T. More ukulele nonsense on there still. And also subscribe to this podcast on whichever platform you're listening to at the moment. Share with your friends should you feel inclined. <laughs> anyway, that's enough shameless self-promotion. Let's see if we can get our listener numbers above just me and you. So let's enter a world of mystery, chaos and the occasional gargantuan ape man. As I mentioned earlier, I loved watching the TV shows about the strange and mysterious when I was younger, and always have really. I was also an avid reader of such magazines like Forty and Times. Actually, I still indulge myself with a copy whenever I'm in the UK. Of course, along with a mandatory issue of Viz Comic. Actually, more on Viz Comic maybe is on another episode. That could be an entertaining one. Who, uh... But what are Forty and Times? That's actually a good topic to talk about immediately. Fortean Times is a British monthly magazine devoted to the anomalous phenomena popularised by the one and only Charles Fort. Charles Fort, you say? Who is this? Charles Hoy Fort, August the 6th, 1874 to May the 3rd, 1932. He was an American writer and a researcher who specialised in anomalous phenomena. And that's very easy for you to say, you don't know how many takes that took. The terms Fortean and Fortiana are sometimes used to characterise various such phenomena, I'm going to use that word a lot, I think. I need to learn to say it properly. But Ford's books sold well and are still in print today. His work continues to inspire admirers who refer to themselves as Fortians, and he has influenced many aspects of science fiction today. Examples of the odd phenomena in Ford's books include many occurrences of the sort variously referred to as occult, supernatural, or paranormal. Actually, the Fortean Times has some great headlines in the past, such as Hitler's corpse discovered, Italian Martians, Venezuelan terror blob, Yeti hunts, the legend of Dr. Faustus. You get the idea, this is what the Fortean Times is all about. But this is not a sensational magazine. This is based on some fact. But let's get back with Charles Fort. Other reported occurrences include teleportation, a term Fort himself is generally credited with inventing. Falls of frogs, fishes and inorganic materials, spontaneous human combustion, ball lightning, another term explicitly used by Fort. The books and the magazines also discuss poltergeist events, unaccountable noises, what was that? Explosions, levitation, unidentified flying objects, one of my personal favourites, 
unexplained disappearances, giant wheels of light in the oceans, and animals found outside their normal ranges. See the Phantom Cat for that one. Fort also offered many reports about out of place artifacts, or oop arts as they are called. That's double O-P-A-R-T-S. I like that, oop arts. That just rolls off the tongue. These are strange items found in unlikely locations. He was also perhaps the first person to explain strange human appearances and disappearances by the hypothesis of alien abduction, and he was an early proponent of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. He specifically suggested that strange lights or objects sighted in the skies might be alien spacecraft. Fort's collection of scientific anomalies, including The Book of the Damned in 1919, influenced numerous science fiction writers with their scepticism and as sources of ideas. Fortian phenomena are events which seem to challenge the boundaries of accepted scientific knowledge. And as I said, the Fortian Times, which was founded as actually called The News in its original format in 1973, but was later renamed to Fortian Times in 1976, will this investigate such phenomena. Other Fort books include Many Parts in 1901, which was actually an unpublished biography, The Outcast Manufacturers in 1909. Now this book, The Outcast Manufacturers, which was published 112 years ago, was later serialised in the American edition of Pearson's magazine. Only five chapters were published in Pearson's. Now, understanding Fort's books takes time and effort. His style is complex, violent, poetic, profound, and just occasionally very puzzling. Ideas are abandoned and then recalled a few pages on. Examples of data are offered, compared, contrasted. Conclusions are made and broken, as Fort holds up the unorthodox to the scrutiny of the orthodoxy that continually fails to account for them. Pressing on his attacks, Fort shows what he sees as the ridiculousness of the conventional explanations and then interjects with his own theories. This was very difficult to serialise. The Book of the Damned, as I mentioned in 1919, this was concerning various types of anomalous phenomena. I got it right again. Including UFOs, strange falls of both organic and inorganic material, as I mentioned, weather patterns that were strange, the possible existence of creatures, generally believed to be mythological, disappearances of people, and many other phenomena. Phenomena, do 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 do. Phenomena, do 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 do. Sorry, had to say that. <laughs> but the Book of the Damned is considered to be the first of the specific topic of anomalistics. His next book was Newlands in 1923. Newlands is the second non-fiction book. It deals primarily with astronomical anomalies. Fort expands in this book on his theory about the Super Sargasso Sea, a place where earthly things supposedly materialise in order to rain down on Earth, as well as developing an idea that there are continents above the skies of Earth. As evidence, he cites a number of anomalous phenomena, including strange mirages of landmasses, groups of people and animals in the sky. He also continues his attacks on scientific dogma, citing a number of mysterious stars and planets that scientists fail to account for. His third published non-fiction work was called Law. L-O exclamation mark in 1931. In this one, he details a wide range of unusual phenomena. In the final chapter of the book, he proposes a new cosmology, that the Earth is stationary in space and surrounded by a solid shell, which, in the book's final words, was not unthinkably far away. See, this man was wearing a tinfoil hat long before any of you were. His next book was called Wild Talents. This is 1932, and like his previous works, this book deals largely with a number of anomalous phenomena, as well as his ongoing attack on current scientific theories. The book deals for the most part with trying to fit the various phenomena described into Fort's new theory of psychic and mental power. As did his previous book, Law, Wild Talents deals with a wide range of phenomena. Fort's writing style and tongue-in-cheek sense of self-deprecating humour is prominent, particularly in the section on his own psychic experiences. 
and the book is shorter than his previous work, so much easier to read. You should try and read these, they are very interesting but very, very off the wall. In recounting a wide variety of odd phenomena, Fort largely disregards his previous teleportation theory, or at least incorporates it into his new thesis, rather than a vague cosmic joker, as he postulated in his early books. The responsibility for these occurrences are freak powers that occur in the human mind that cannot be naturally developed, but are there. Fort feels as a sort of throwback to primeval times. Fort again discusses many topics he touched on before, though generally in more detail than his other works. Poltergeists, spontaneous human combustion, animal mutilations, vampires and ghosts, along with many supposed cases of psychokinesis and ability to control one's surroundings. His thesis is that in primeval times, man needed such extraordinary powers in order to survive in the wilderness, and that all people can potentially develop these powers if they literally put their mind to it. He also explores alleged cases of witchcraft and murder by mental suggestion, and he compiles an impressive list of occult criminology, people apparently being murdered under peculiar or unexplainable circumstances. He also attacks the general sense of taboo, and suggests that such talents would become acceptable if science would deem them as such. Fort also plays around with the idea that humans are able to transform into animals at will, citing a number of cases of werewolves and other similar creatures, such as gorillas and hyenas. He also casually and quite humorously dismisses in one chapter reports of a talking dog that disappeared in a thin greenish vapour, because, in his view, it is an extraordinary event, and he only deals with the quite ordinary ones. Fort also briefly mentions a psychic occurrence that happened to him and his family, where he imagined a picture frame in his house falling from the wall, and then it happened. He regards this with his usual tongue-in-cheek manner, and it is doubtful, as usual, that he seriously believes what he's saying. And that's really what the Fortean Times is about. Taking fact, it's sometimes tongue-in-cheek, but sometimes there is plenty of fact there. Anyway, you get the general idea of where we're headed in this episode. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Thank you, Rod Serling. I do love that introduction to the Twilight Zone. Just had to throw that in there. Anyway, let's delve into the weird and wonderful happenings in the world of more recent times. Let's start with 2020, which began on a hopeful note as we all know, as all New Year's seem to do, but very soon however, it transformed into a year that introduced, shall we say, a new normal to the world, and gave a whole new meaning to the phrase unprecedented times. A lot had already happened in the first half of 2020, from, as we all know, the coronavirus pandemic, to Australia's devastating bushfires. Then there was American rapper Kanye West announced his presidential bid, who'd have thought? <laughs> Only then to promptly drop out of the race. Prince Harry and Meghan declared they were stepping down as senior royals, as if anybody really gave a f and they moved to North America. The Olympics in Japan were postponed, and then Elon Musk promptly named his baby boy XAEA12. There you go, 2020 was already off to a bizarre start. But here are some of the more other bizarre stories that may have slipped under your radar and hidden among the torrent of COVID-related news stories in 2020. You just cannot turn on the radio, read a newspaper, look online without reading about COVID. I know it's very important at the moment, but let's keep it light here. Let's keep it bizarre. So, did you know in 2020, a star went missing? 
No, not Kanye West, not again. Have you ever heard of a massive star just disappearing? For nearly two decades, astronomers studied a star in a galaxy 75 million light years away. They looked at the latest observations and realized they could not find it anymore. The discovery was announced and it could be the first instance of a star collapsing into a black hole without first exploding into a supernova. A lot more on that later in this episode. We'll get very deep into the universe shortly. Another mystery event, mystery drones over Colorado and Nebraska. In January of 2020, people in the US states of Colorado and Nebraska began to report mysterious drones in the sky. According to the New York Post, rumors flew thick and fast about drones as big as cars flying in grid patterns in the night sky. Ooh. And of course, let me remind you that 2020 was also the year that gave us murder hornets. Lest you forget, Earlier this year, an invasive predatory insect dubbed the Murder Hornet turned up at Washington State near the Canadian border, and it sparked panic. An Asian giant hornet that can sting you multiple times and deliver large doses of venom just because of the size of them, said Sven Eric Spickiger, managing entomologist at the Washington State Agricultural Department. But then he continued, but what we're told from the literature is that most people can survive one or two stings, he said. Murder hornets. Oh. What else happened in 2020? Poland accidentally invaded the Czech Republic. Well, accidental invasions are not unheard of, but they remain uncommon. In a minor misunderstanding, the Polish military recently invaded and briefly occupied territory in the Czech Republic. They stopped locals from entering a church in their own country. The misunderstanding, however, was quickly cleared up and the Polish army retreated. Pretty bizarre. UFOs, what about those? Now strangely, the Pentagon actually released three UFO videos. The United States Department of Defense officially released three short videos showing unidentified aerial phenomena. In a statement dated April 27th, the Department of Defense said that the videos were taken by Navy pilots in 2004 and 2005 and had been circulating on the internet since they were leaked in 2007 and 2017. Hopefully, the United States Department of Defense is starting to release more. Is Area 51 real? Will we ever know? Is Elvis alive? Oh, oh, oh. Other strange news. Did you know a whale prevented a train crash? At the De Akkers metro station in Rotterdam, Netherlands, a crash occurred just after midnight on the 2nd of November 2020. During the accident, an empty metro train on the Rotterdam metro crashed through the buffer stop at the end of the sidings beyond the De Akkers metro station in the city of, and I apologise for pronunciations to all you Dutch listeners, Spiekenis in the Netherlands. Haha, <laughs> almost got there. Now this is the more southwesterly station on the Rotterdam metro. De Akkers was constructed in 1985, but in 2002, two whale sculptures made of polyester and designed by architect Martin Streuss and named Walfischstarten, Dutch for whales' tails, were installed at the end of the sidings beyond the station. After the crash, these sculptures have been referred to in some media with the name Saved by a Whale's Tail. Ooh, I know a song about a whale of a tail. Maybe that later. Now, shortly after arriving at the station, the train operated by RET failed to stop at the end of the sidings in time. But these were built on a viaduct projecting out over the canal, and they crashed through the buffer stop at the line's terminus, coming to a halt with the front of the train atop of one of the two sculptures, with the rear car held up by the edge of the viaduct. No passengers were on the train at the time of the accident, and the driver was able to evacuate the train without injury, but it was taken to hospital as a precautionary measure. Following the accident, Stroyce was interviewed about the sculptures and reported that he was surprised the statue was able to hold the weight of a train, and stated that it does look rather poetic though. His disclaimer was that the statue was never meant to be an extra safety measure for trains. 
And finally, and unfortunately back with COVID, did you know a monkey stole COVID samples? Yes, it did. In a bizarre incident in one of Uttar Pradesh's largest government hospitals in India, a monkey attacked a lab technician, snatched vials containing blood samples from three coronavirus patients, and escaped. A video of the incident, which occurred in May, shows the monkey sitting atop a tree, proudly holding the samples it stole. Actually, monkey. Ape men. That kind of, well, very tenuously leads nicely into the next section. One of my favourite subjects to discuss about the weird and the wonderful and the unexplained. Here's a clue. Please do not adjust your sets. What you are about to hear is not the work of a CBC technician gone mad. It's the sound of a Sasquatch. I don't remember how. I didn't remember anything for two weeks after. But I'm alive. And I'm not going back there again. That's all I know. Or want to know about the abominable snowmen. Well, if you haven't guessed it by now, one subject of the TV shows I spoke about at the beginning of this episode, and the books that fascinated me as a boy, was always the mysteries of the Bigfoot, the Sasquatch, the Yeti, the Abominable Snowman, or whatever you choose to call those large, muscular, bipedal, ape-like creatures. Actually, the word Yeti is derived from the Tibetan Yache, a compound of the words Tibetan Ya, which means rocky, or rocky place, and Che, bear. So, Rocky Bear. The che, as I pronounce it for bear, is actually the T, te, or te sound in Tibetan, and derived from the spoken word tre, spelled dread. Yep, go figure, I'm no Tibetan, but this is what I researched. <laughs> so the Tibetan for bear, with the ah so softly pronounced almost to be unaudible, thus making it te or te, yeah te, Rocky Bear. I'll stick with Yeti, much easier. Anyway, after that debacle of Tibetan language, if you're still with me, other terms used by the Himalayan peoples do not translate exactly the same, but refer to legendary and indigenous wildlife. Michi, which in or Michi, which in Tibetan translates as man bear, Dzute, Dzu translates as cattle, and the full meaning translates as cattle bear, referring to the Himalayan brown bear. Migoi or Migo, which in Tibetan translates as wild man. These are other names, all in legend in the Himalayas. There's Bunmanchi, this is Nepali for jungle man. That is used outside Sherpa communities, where Yeti is the more common name. Merka, another name for wild man, local legend holds that anyone sees one, dies or is killed. Then there's Kang Admi, the snowman, hence where you get the translation of the abominable snowman, more about that shortly. And in Chinese, there's Zuren, which translates also as snowman. Actually, the name abominable snowman was first coined in 1921. The year Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Burry led the British Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition, which he chronicled in his book, Mount Everest, The Reconnaissance. In the book, Howard Burry included an account of crossing the Lac Palar at 21,000 feet, that's 6,400 metres for those of you still in the EU, where he found footprints that he believed were probably caused by a large, loping, grey wolf. 
which in the soft snow formed double tracks rather like those of a barefooted man. He adds that his Sherpa guides at once volunteered that the tracks must be that of the wild man of the snows, to which they gave the name Meto Kangmi. Meto translates as man bear and Kangmi translates as snowman. The use of abominable snowman also began when Henry Newman, a long-time contributor to the Statesman in Calcutta, writing under the pen name Kim, interviewed the porters of the Everest Reconnaissance Expedition on their return to Darjeeling. Newman mistranslated the word Mito as filthy, substituting the term abominable perhaps out of artistic license more than anything, and hence the term abominable snowman was born. The word Sasquatch actually is believed to be an anglicisation of the Salish word Sasquets, meaning wild man or hairy man. J.W. Burns coined the term in the 1930s. Burns was an Indian agent assigned to the Chihali's band, now known as the Stetsales First Nation. Stetsales people claimed a close bond with Sasquets and believe it has the ability to move between the physical and spiritual realm. Sasquatch has also been more commonly known as Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. I quite like the origin of the Sasquets though. Sasquatch. That's very cool. But whatever you call it, for decades people around the world have been fascinated with these legends. Now this is a cryptid. What's a cryptid you ask? This is a creature whose existence is suggested but has not yet been confirmed by the scientific community. But all versions are rooted in indigenous legend and is commonly researched by cryptozoologists and enthusiasts. Some believe the Sasquatch is a nearly extinct species of hominid that survives in isolation, while others consider the creature to be the product of folklore and of hoax occasionally. In fact, I myself made a pilgrimage a few years back to one of the USA's Bigfoot hotspots, Estes Park in Larimer County, Colorado. Sadly for me, no encounters in this beautiful and expansive region, very close to Denver. Although on the same trip we did get up close with a grizzly bear coming out of the woods early one morning, probably just doing what bears do in the woods early in the morning. And fortunately for us, we were safe in our vehicle at the time. No way was I getting out there to fight a grizzly bear who'd just come back from a dump in the woods or doing what bears do in the woods. Colorado itself has long been considered as one of the most active places in the country for Bigfoot, with hundreds of sightings reported there, some dating as far back as the 1800s. Estes Park that I mentioned sits in Larimer County, which has had several Bigfoot sightings over the years. The last notable sighting there was in May 2019, when a woman and her husband visiting the area reported hearing strange crying sounds as they walked along a trail on Storm Mountain. Great name for a mountain. The woman followed the sound until she became disoriented, but managed to take a few pictures of the area. She was then able to find her husband, and the two made their way back to the cabin they were visiting. Under review of her pictures, she found what looked like a crouched figure in the trees, bearing quite a resemblance to the famed Bigfoot. In December of 2016, possible Bigfoot tracks were reported outside Windsor, as well as in July of 2015 near Estes Park again. People have also reported giant footprints in the Roar wilderness, elk hunters seeing the creature chase deer, and campers watching as the creature approached their campfire north of Fort Collins, all in Colorado. Actually, Animal Planet delved into the famous 1962 Colorado mystery sighting, investigating the 8mm film that was shot in that year. While it is grainy, it appears to show a large human-like figure jumping around a rocky hillside. It was taken on a camping trip in the Rockies in the Rawaha wilderness, and the family kept the footage a secret for 50 years before allowing it to be shown on Animal Planet. Estes Park hosts a Bigfoot festival every year, called Estes Park Bigfoot Days, something I would love to go to one day, but it was sadly cancelled in 2020 for the obvious reasons. And it wasn't on when I was there, but I would like to go back. A really beautiful part of the American wilderness, Colorado itself is a beautiful state. 
Sightings of a furry, upright biped and reports of beastly footprints have been reported from as far afield as the Himalayas, as I said earlier, although no definitive proof exists. The often, and often questionable, reports continue adding up. Now there are some very famous, and perhaps most convincing Bigfoot photos and movies ever captured. Here's some evidence about them. Is Bigfoot real? You be the judge. Let's discuss some of the most famous sightings. Now arguably the most famous and influential Bigfoot footage is the 1967 film shot by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin in Northern California. I remember this one vividly. Scared the shite out of me as a kid, but fantastic. The Bigfoot walk it depicts has been parodied by many, but never truly replicated. Even with an enhanced image, it's hard to tell if it's a person in a gorilla suit or the real deal. You will know this sighting if you see the film. It's been the subject of many hoax allegations, including at least three books about it. Patterson and Gimlin both denied that they had perpetrated a hoax, but in a 1999 telephone interview with a television producer for the BBC's The X Creatures, Gimlin said that for some time I was totally convinced no one could fool me. And of course, I'm an older man now, and I think there could have been a possibility of a hoax, but it would have had to been really well planned by Roger Patterson. In 2002, Philip Morris, a owner of Morris Costumes, a North Carolina-based company offering costumes, props and stage products, also claimed that he made a gorilla suit that was used in the Patterson film. He came out on this quite late, shall we say, but he had discussed his role in the hoax at costume conventions, lectures and magician conventions back in the 80s, but first addressed the public at large on August the 16th, 2002, on the Charlotte, North Carolina radio station WBT. His story was also printed in the Charlotte Observer. Morris claims he was reluctant to expose the hoax earlier for fear of harming his business. Giving away a performer's secrets, he said, would be widely regarded as disreputable. Well, I think he was making enough money on the tour circuit. Maybe. Anyway. But Morris said that he sold an ape suit to Patterson via mail order in 1967, thinking it was going to be used in what Patterson described as a prank. Ordinarily, the gorilla suits he sold were used for popular sideshow routines that depicted an attractive woman, supposedly from some far-flung corner of the globe, being altered by a sorcerer or scientist into a gorilla, or otherwise ape-like monster. After the initial sale, Morris said that Patterson telephoned him asking how to make the shoulders more massive and the arms longer. Morris says he suggested that whoever wore the suit should wear football shoulder pads and hold sticks in his hands within the suit. As for the creature's walk, Morris said, the Bigfoot researchers say that no human can walk that way in the film. Oh yes you can, when you're wearing clown's feet. But you can't put the ball of your foot down first. You have to put your foot down flat, otherwise you will stumble. Another thing, when you put on the gorilla head, you can only turn your head maybe a quarter of the way. And to look behind you, you've got to turn your head and your shoulders and your hips. Plus, the shoulder pads in the suit are in the way of the jaw. That's why the Bigfoot turns and looks the way he does in the film he has to twist his entire upper body. Morris's wife and business partner, Amy, had vouched for her husband and claims to have helped frame the suit. Morris offered no evidence, apart from his own testimony though, to support his account. The most conspicuous shortcoming being the absence of a gorilla suit or documentation that would match the detail evidenced in the film and could have been produced in 1967. A recreation of the film was undertaken on October the 6th, 2004 at Cow Camp near Rimrock Lake, a location 41 miles west of Yukima. This was six months after the publication of Long's book and 11 months after Long had first contacted Morris. Bigfooter Daniel Perez wrote, National Geographic's producer, Noel Doxter, noted the suit used in the recreation was in no way similar to what was depicted in the original Patterson-Gimlin film. 
Morris wouldn't consent to release the video to National Geographic though, the recreation's sponsor, claiming he hadn't had adequate time to prepare and that the month was in the middle of a very busy season. However, he has not attempted to create a suit more to his liking since that time. Go figure, Mr Morris. What are you doing? There have been others claiming to be involved too. A certain Bob Hieronymus claimed to have been the figure depicted in the Patterson film. Hieronymus says that he had not previously publicly discussed his role in the hoax because he had hoped to have been paid eventually and was afraid of being convicted of fraud when he confessed. After speaking with his lawyer, he was told that since he had not been paid for his involvement in the hoax, he could not be held accountable. But Hieronymus actually passed a polygraph test. But then so did Patterson when quizzed by the National Wildlife magazine. This is the beauty of the story, so much contradiction, yet so much truth, so many lies, so much fact. We just don't know which is right. Another claimant was Ray Wallace, but this was posthumous. He died in 2002 and a reporter went to investigate as the family of Wallace went public with claims that he had started the Bigfoot phenomenon with fake footprints made from wooden foot shaped cutouts left in Californian sites in 1958. However, much of the Hieronymus, Wallace and Morris statements do not align in one complete story. As I said, I guess we will never know, even after there have been numerous scientific studies on the film, there is never going to be a definitive answer. It's great. That's what I love about these mysteries. Let's move on. Another one of the more compelling captured sightings was when a youth group was camping in the Marble Mountains wilderness. Marble Mountains, fantastic. The leader, Jim Mills, noticed a strange looking creature skulking along a ridge nearby. He filmed it for nearly seven minutes, making the somewhat grainy footage the longest video of an alleged Bigfoot sighting. The sighting occurs after the group finds some bizarre structures in the forest. One of these structures included a den that was constructed out of twigs and large branches. Minutes into the video the group find the dark figure on top of the ridge over from the group. The creature was filmed for three minutes as it walked down the mountain ridge. It is apparent that the creature does not act human as its body proportions and limb movements are abnormal. It was estimated that the Bigfoot was nine feet tall. Once the Sasquatch realised a group of people had caught it, the Bigfoot begins jumping up and down, screams, pushes a tree and becomes shaken. The video though was filmed at a long distance, but experts say that the technology has allowed them to identify many non-human characteristics. Another one that is baffling the experts. Now one of the most famous images ever captured for the Yeti, this was British explorer Eric Earl Shipton and he snapped the photo while trekking through the Himalayas in 1951, alleging that the picture of the footprint belonged to a Yeti. In 2014 Christie's auction house in London capitalised on the worldwide interest in Bigfoot and sold the original photo for nearly $5,000. Now this is an iconic image, a word I used a lot in the last episode, and it would be instantly recognisable. There's an ice axe being included in the photographs to show the scale of the giant footprint. You will know it if you saw it. What other sightings of Bigfoot do we have? There was one called the Independence Day film. There was a video that shows an alleged adult Bigfoot walking through the woods with a cub in tow. The filmmaker and exact location are unknown and many skeptics claim there is a telling visible seam of a gorilla suit there. Actually, I'll let you make your own mind up on that one and I'll post the link in the show notes. Another sighting in October 2012, a group of siblings hiking in Provo Canyon thought they'd spotted a bear in the woods and started filming. Interesting that all these people were carrying cameras at the time, although 2012 I could expect it with a phone, and in modern times of course, but back in the day, hmm, not so sure. Anyway, when the creature stood up on two legs, the hikers ran, abruptly ending the shaky video. A year later, the siblings launched a Kickstarter campaign to investigate other Utah Bigfoot sightings. 
A few more. In 2007, Hunter Rick Jacobs captured some of the most famous Bigfoot images to date with a camera mounted to a tree in Pennsylvania's Allegheny National Forest. Apologies for those of you in Pennsylvania, but that's how I think it sounds. His camera also captured clear photos of bear cubs, offering evidence that the unidentified animal was not ursine, bear-like, but skeptics believe the animal is just a bear sick with mange. Oh, nasty. What others? Locals in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, were baffled by a footprint measuring 17.75 inches found near a residential home in 1980. According to the Associated Press, the footprint coincided with reports of strange noises and a strong but unusual odour in the area. Oh dear. And finally, in 1994, former US Forest Patrolman Paul Freeman claimed he saw a family of Bigfoots in Washington's Blue Mountains. Again, the video is shaky and grainy, but has been deemed to be the real deal by so-styled Bigfoot experts. But what tends to link all of these sightings together, in my view, is the fact that generally these are average, sane people. They're not the kind of people wearing the tinfoil hats and advocating the flat earth. These are just everyday people. Why would they make it up? Who knows? It's a mystery. Although my personal favourite sighting was the Yasquatch of Reedy Creek and that and the East Savannah Circle Disco Yeti that I spotted back in the fall of 2019. But I think that's for another day. Surely it can't all be a mass hallucination or hoax. There's got to be some truth out there. The truth is out there after all. Okay, that's enough about mountain men, Sasquatches, Sasquatchai, or whatever they're called, and Yetis, or Yeti, depending on what the plural is in Tibetan. <laughs> okay, let's move on again. We didn't really touch on the universe as much as I'd like to have in Season 1, so I think this section fits just nicely right in here, and also continues the unexplained and mysterious theme. Let's have some bite-sized chunks of information that may possibly blow your mind if you dwell on them for too long. If you're listening to this before you go to sleep, then it's probably a very good time to press pause and continue this episode in the morning. Now think spooky phenomena, and you might think of ghosts, ghouls, and the other things that go bump in the night. But forget Edgar Allan Poe for creepy tales of the unexplained. You need look no further than your nearest physics textbook. Our world is shaped by all sorts of unseen forces that we really don't fully understand. So let's take a look at some of those unsolved mysteries that plague the minds of physicists, from dark matter to the multiverse. It's time to delve into a world in which truth is stranger than fiction. Ooh. Well, let's start with dark matter, the spider's web. Planets, stars, asteroids, galaxies, the things that we can actually see make up less than 5% of the total universe. Scientists actually think another, well, around 25% is a strange substance called dark matter. We can't see it, we don't understand it, but we're pretty sure it's out there because everything moves to its gravitational tune. Scientists believe that dark matter acts like a spider's web holding fast moving galaxies together and there's so much of this stuff that it bends the appearance of space so that when astronomers observe distant galaxies, they often appear distorted. We have plenty of evidence that dark matter exists, but as for what it is, that remains a mystery. Some think dark matter is composed of an undiscovered particle or particles, others believe it's an undiscovered property of gravity. Whatever the truth, dark matter is a real puzzle, and it's proving very tricky to pin down. So if dark matter makes up 25% of the universe, and normal matter makes up 5% of the universe, what about the other 70%? Does it really matter, you ask? Well, we think that the remainder is entirely dark energy powerful enough to tear the entire universe asunder. Whilst dark matter appears to mesh galaxies together, dark energy seems to want to push everything apart. 
We all know that the universe is expanding, but it is expanding more and more quickly than it should be, and scientists believe that dark energy is the culprit. But where's dark energy coming from? Some believe that it's produced from collisions between quantum particles, but again, nobody knows for sure. Talking of quantum, let's talk about the spooky action of quantum entanglement, famously dubbed spooky action at a distance by a dubious Albert Einstein. Quantum entanglement is the phenomenon by which two particles in totally different parts of the universe can be linked to one another, mirroring the behaviour and state of their partner. Quantum entanglement is a bit of a nuisance for classical physics because it breaks some fundamental laws that we previously thought unbreakable. For particles to be connected across such vast distances, they must be sending signals to one another that travel faster than the speed of light, a feat previously considered impossible. What's more, objects are only supposed to be affected by their surroundings. The notion of a particle being affected by something happening on the other side of the universe is just, well, strange. Nonetheless, studies suggest that quantum entanglement does indeed exist. And even though we don't understand it, we could still potentially use it. Because of its spooky characteristics, entanglement could eventually become the bedrock of the next generation of computing and communications. So it is literally, watch this space. And we said it doesn't matter, so what about antimatter? Imagine yourself in opposite land, black is white, up is down, matter is antimatter. It sounds crazy, but the subatomic particles that make up everything around us, electrons, protons and neutrons, all have evil twins. Antimatter particles are the same mass as normal particles, but the opposite electric charge. And because of this, antimatter wipes out normal matter on contact, both are destroyed in an instant. So antimatter has the potential to destroy us and everything we love. But fear not, there's very little antimatter roaming around in the cosmos. I told you you wouldn't sleep if you're still listening. But what's more, antimatter could even prove useful. When antimatter and matter meet and destroy one another, it releases energy. In a PET scanner, anti-electrons are created and their annihilation in the body allows doctors to create sophisticated images. What's more, scientists hope to one day use the energy released by antimatter-matter interactions to power spacecraft. So perhaps antimatter isn't quite so evil after all. Now the universe is really big, like really, really big. Are we going back to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy again? And in the grand scheme of things, human beings are just small fry, and yet we currently seem to be the only ones at the party. Now this is where the Fermi paradox comes in about little green men. This refers to the contradiction between the high probability of extraterrestrial life and the apparent lack of evidence that such life exists. We've now identified a handful of potentially habitable Earth-like planets, but we're still yet to see any signs of intelligent life from out there. So why the radio silence? There are numerous theories ranging from the possibility that intelligent life is exceptionally rare or short-lived, to the notion that alien species are purposely avoiding detection. Is there anybody out there? I hope so. And if we're talking about the universe, let's talk about the massive monsters that are black holes. Good movie, actually. That was a Disney movie, I believe, The Black Hole. Anyway, I digress. Black holes are a constant staple of sci-fi thrillers, but black holes are violent, vastly destructive and invisible. Black holes are regions of space in which the force of gravity is so powerful that everything around it is drawn in. Not even light can escape, which is why we can't see any of this going on. Experts think that there could be up to 100 million black holes in our galaxy alone. And these monsters can grow to become billions of times more massive than our sun. What's more, at the centre of most galaxies, including our own, 
lurks a super massive black hole. But we don't know what happens when objects pass through the centre. They might become spaghettified, stretched apart in long strings of matter. They could even be transported through a shortcut to a different part of our universe. Spooky again. And as we talked about in the last episode, in space, no one can hear you scream, right? Space is a vacuum, so there shouldn't be any noise. And yet, you guessed it, there is. The entire universe is alive with sound, and it's the space roar. The space roar isn't just everyday sound, it's actually those odd radio signals that we've detected throughout space. You know, radio waves. We use them for communications, TV, cell phones, radios. Well, it looks like space is full of them, kicking out noise that's loud enough to drown out other signals. But this is quite a nuisance for scientists trying to explore the cosmos. So where's the roar coming from? Some think it's leftover radiation from early stars. Others believe it's gases swirling around galaxy clusters, or else galaxies themselves. But for now, the roaring universe remains another unsolved and noisy mystery. Let's move on to cosmic rays, our ghostly visitors. Space can be an intense place, but we're totally shielded down here on Earth, aren't we? Hmm, about that. Cosmic rays are high energy particles that come from outer space and regularly bombard Earth. Generally, these particles are completely harmless. Our atmosphere kindly protects us, but there are some exceptions. Up high in the stratosphere, cosmic rays can affect both human beings and electronics. Astronauts and aircraft crew are exposed to higher levels of radiation than the average person because of the presence of cosmic rays, although still not enough to be a major risk. But electronics are the real potential victims here. Very rarely, a cosmic ray particle with enough energy can go straight into an electronic system causing serious damage. The high energy particles can disrupt electronic data, leading to system crashes. And in an increasingly digital world, that's not good news. The ghosts in the machine, the gremlins in the machine, are actually only just beginning to learn about the potential impact that cosmic rays could have, and the race is on to find a solution. But what about our universe? Is it a multiverse? Does it have a doppelganger? Do you want to feel small? Well, here goes. Humanity is but a tiny speck on a planet within a galaxy that itself makes up of just a tiny, infinitesimal fraction of the universe. In fact, the universe is so vast, we've explored less than 0.1% of it. And yet, it's entirely possible that our universe is just one of many others. The multiverse theory, I love this theory, suggests that the cosmos contains multiple universes. Indeed, some scientists believe that there are an infinite number of universes which means an infinite number of civilizations, histories, and even versions of you. However, this theory is still highly controversial, and I don't think we're likely to be charting parallel universes anytime soon. Although, in season one, I seem to remember recommending the book, The Long Earth and The Long Mars. It's a series of books by the late Terry Pratchett, very good on the multiverse theory. I enjoyed it anyway. Now let's continue with this mind-blowing information. How about the big crunch? The end of the world as we know it, oh dear. Now all good things must come to an end, even the universe itself. But how, you ask? Well, there are lots of mind-blowing ideas out there. In the past, the deliciously named Big Crunch suggests a scenario in which the universe's expansion, which has been going on since the Big Bang, tapers off and instead gives way to the force of gravity. As a result, everything, planets, galaxies, clusters, is drawn together in a single dense point of mass until everything is wiped out. But don't get too worried, that's millions of billions of years away. I'll talk about that soon, actually. 
These days, the Big Crunch is by no means the only theory out there concerning our inevitable demise. Other ideas include the Big Freeze, the Big Bounce and the Big Rip. So rest assured, even if we don't know how the universe ends, we know it's going to be a pretty big event. For centuries, human beings have looked up at the stars and contemplated the universe and our place in it. From the dawn of time, we've always wanted to explore and make sense of the world. And yet, so many mysteries still remain. The dawn of time. That reminds me of Spaceship Earth in Disney World. Sorry, had to get the link in there. Anyway, amidst all the lingering uncertainties, one thing is for sure. The universe is so much stranger and more complex than we could ever have imagined. One amazing fact I uncovered while researching all this is that since the Mesozoic Age, when life diversified rapidly and giant reptiles, dinosaurs and other monstrous beasts roamed the Earth, which spans from about 252 million years ago to about 66 million years ago, our spaceship Earth has come quite away. In fact, we have now travelled over 100 million light years across to the other side of the Milky Way. In fact, in one year, we travel around 584 million miles across the abyss of space. For those of you still in Europe, that's around 940 million kilometres. Actually, this is a great time to do this. Let's talk numbers. Let's talk galactic years. The galactic year, also known as a cosmic year, is the duration of time required for the Sun to orbit once around the centre of the Milky Way galaxy. As I said, estimates of the duration of one orbit range from 225 to 250 million terrestrial years. The solar system itself is travelling at an average speed of 230 kilometres per second. Oh, I fell into Europe for a second there. Or 143 miles per second. That's 514,000 miles per hour. And that's within its trajectory around the galactic centre point. A speed at which an object could circumnavigate the Earth's equator in 2 minutes 54 seconds. And that speed corresponds nicely to approximately 1 1300th of the speed of light. But the galactic year provides a conveniently usable unit for depicting cosmic and geological time periods. By contrast, a billion year scale does not allow for useful discrimination between geological events. And a million year scale requires some rather large numbers. How about we have a brief history of everything and a glimpse into what's to come. Now assuming that one galactic year is 225 million years, here we go. About 61.32 galactic years ago, the Big Bang, of which the theory finally reached its conclusion 2019 after 12 seasons. <laughs> 54 galactic years ago, the birth of the Milky Way. Well actually not a bad choice, but I'm more of a Mars or Marathon man. And for those of you listening in the colonies or after 1990, I meant a Snickers. Anyway, back to the science. 20.44 galactic years ago, the birth of the Sun. 17 to 18 galactic years ago, oceans appear on Earth. 16.889 galactic years ago, life begins on Earth. And 16.890 galactic years ago, David Attenborough starts filming it. 15.555 galactic years ago, prokaryotes, single-celled organisms start to appear. Then 12 galactic years ago, bacteria appears. 10 galactic years ago, stable continents appear. 6.8 galactic years ago, multicellular organisms appear. And then at 6.666 galactic years ago, eukaryotes appear. These are organisms whose bodies are made up of eukaryotic cells, such as protists, fungi, plants and animals. These cells are cells that contain a nucleus and organelles, and are enclosed by a plasma membrane. Now we're getting into modern times. 2.4 galactic years ago, the Cambrian explosion occurs. 
an event in the Cambrian period when practically all major animal phyla started appearing in the fossil record. It lasted for about 13 to 25 million years and resulted in the divergence of most modern metazoan phyla. Now we're definitely getting into recent times. Two galactic years ago, the first brain structure appears. In worms, 1.11 galactic years ago, the Permian-Triassic extinction event. A series of extinction pulses that contributed to the greatest mass extinction in Earth's history. Large meteor impact events, massive volcanic eruptions, climate change brought on by large releases of underwater methane, methane producing microbes, or combustion of fossil fuels, that kind of thing. 0.2935 galactic years ago, a mere blink of the galactic eye, the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event. Then we get to present day, simple as that. Did I miss something? Let's keep going into the future. Now one galactic year from now, what will happen? All the continents of the Earth may fuse into a supercontinent. Three potential arrangements of this configuration have been dubbed Amasia, Novo Pangaea, and Pangaea Ultima. Great names. 2.3 galactic years from now, tidal acceleration moves the Moon far enough from the Earth so that solar eclipses are no longer possible. Four galactic years from now, carbon dioxide levels fall to the point at which C4 photosynthesis look it up, it's no longer possible. Multicellular life dies out. <gasps> 15 galactic years from now. Surface conditions on Earth are comparable to those of Venus today. Very hot and dry, lots of volcanoes, and lava flows. Mm, nice. 22 galactic years from now, the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxy begin to collide. And then 25 galactic years from now, the Sun ejects a planetary nebula, leaving behind a white dwarf. 30 galactic years from now, Remember the Milky Way and Andromeda? They complete their merger into a giant elliptical galaxy called Milkometer or Milkdromeda. Now 500 galactic years from now. The universe's expansion causes all galaxies beyond the Milky Way's local group to disappear beyond the cosmic light horizon, removing them from the observable universe. I told you not to listen to this before bedtime. Until finally, 2000 galactic years from now, a local group of 47 galaxies coalesce into a single, large galaxy. And finally, Covid lockdown ceases and travel restrictions are lifted. <laughs> Personally, I like the concept of the great spaghetti monster in the sky and he'll come and save us one day. Thousands of pastafarians can't be wrong, surely. In fact, let's talk about the pastafarians moving swiftly on. According to the gospel of the flying spaghetti monster, does exist, called the Loose Cannon, the Holy Book of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. This is taken from the Book of Suggestions, chapter 1, verse 1. I am the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Thou shalt have no other monsters before me. Afterwards is okay, just use protection. The only monster who deserves capitalization is me. Other monsters are false monsters, undeserving of capitalization. And also taken from the Book of Slackers, chapter 1, verses 51 to 52, since you have done a half-assed job, you will receive half an ass. The great pirate Solomon grabbed his ceremonial scimitar and struck his remaining donkey, cleaving it into two. Now if you're still with me, and your mind is still intact, or even, or even blown to smithereens, I think it's time for something a little bit lighter. Actually, smithereens, now there's a word. What about the origin of smithereens? Let's keep going on this bizarre trek we're going on. So what is the origin of the word smithereens? What a word. Well, ultimately, it's Irish, either in whole or in part. Actually, there are two possibilities of the origin of smithereens. Number one, 
there's a word smither. Obviously the Irish spelling is S-M-I-O-D-A-R, but I think it's pronounced smither. A smiodar. <laughs> but that means fragment. The bit that becomes spelled een in English comes from an Irish suffix, comes from an Irish suffix that acts as a diminutive. So smithereens means tiny pieces or tiny fragments. Easy peasy. There is another explanation. It is also vaguely possible that the word comes from a compounding of the Irish reen suffix, as I said earlier, meaning the suffix of diminutive, and mixed with the word smithy in English. Small fragments of poorly alloyed metal can shatter into sharp shards because of heat stress, leaving tiny little pieces flying in all directions. So smithereens might possibly be little tiny smithy parts, with smithy being English in origin, as in blacksmith, and the suffix being Irish in origin, smithereens. Amazing. Yes, I did look this all up when I was researching. As soon as I said the word smithereens, I thought, there's an interesting word. Let's find out. Anyway, let's move on very quickly to something a little bit simpler and a lot less mind-blowing. We've had ape men, we've had yetis, we've had the unknown, we've had the universe imploding on itself. How about I end this show with a top five? A good old top five to keep us all sane again. Now, I haven't done a top ten or a top five for a while, and I always want to throw these in from time to time. So let's go completely off topic and change tack completely with my top five beers. I'm not so sure I should start such a big topic so late in this episode, but here we go. If you're still listening now, congratulations and thank you for still listening. <laughs> this has been a good one so far for me. Anyway, let's go for the top five beers. Straight in at number five. From Japan, Hitachino Nest Beer. If you haven't heard of it, let me tell you. Gyuchi Brewery is a brewery in Naka, Ibaraki Prefecture in Japan. It was established in 1823 by village headman Kyuchi Gihe as a sake and shochu producer. Shochu, you say? Almost the same as soju in South Korea. Oh, keep away from that. But it's very similar. Shochu is a Japanese distilled beverage, less than 45% alcohol by volume, or at least in modern times it is. It is typically distilled from rice, kome, barley, mugai, sweet potatoes, satsuma imo, Yes, I said satsuma. Buckwheat, soba, or brown sugar, kokoto. There you go, a little bit of Japanese for you, who'd have thought? Though it is even sometimes produced from other ingredients, such as chestnut, sesame seeds, potatoes, and even carrots. Typically, shochu contains 25% alcohol by volume, which is weaker than baiju, whiskey or vodka, but stronger than huangju, sake or wine. Yes, I did live in Japan for a while, and I'm still getting the pronunciations incorrect, I'm sure. But it's not uncommon for multiple distilled shochu, which is more likely to be used in mixed drinks, to contain up to 35% alcohol by volume. But as I said, in the olden days, and especially in South Korea's soju, when it wasn't as regulated, you could be up to mystery volumes of alcohol. Always dangerous. <laughs> but we're talking about beers, and the brewery craft beer production began in 1996, after a change in Japanese law governing microbrewing. A number of Kyuchi's products seek to combine European beer-making technology with traditional Japanese brewing techniques. For example, its X-Hit Hitachino Nest Beer is matured in shochu casks, which is why I talked about shochu. There are various iterations of Hitachino Nest Beer, each with the iconic owl logo on the label. There are the Amber Ale, Espresso Stout, the Japanese Classic Ale, which is like an IPA, an Indian Pale Ale, Lacto Sweet Stout, New Year Celebration Ale, which is nicely spiced, Pale ale, a real ginger ale, obviously a ginger flavoured ale. 
alcoholic though. There's Red Rice Ale, Weizen, XH, which I mentioned earlier, is a Belgian strong ale, and one of my favourites, the delicious Dai Dai, which is an orange IPA. And as I say, for number five for me, it is the Hitachino Nest Beer White Ale. It is truly delicious. It's an appealing pale golden brew. This beer displays a rather light haze and throws a small yet creamy white head. Aromas of nutmeg, orange peel and coriander which permeate the nose and tantalising hints of sweet malt and spicy wheat that lie below the surface. I actually discovered this offering at the Asian Beer Festival in Singapore back in 2012 and always go back to it. For those of you who actually like a good beer festival, this one is a must. At the time, it was set on the starting grid of the Singapore Formula 1 track, obviously when not in use so there's no cars on there, and there were several temporary buildings erected. Great beers, great food, fantastic music, and it was a great atmosphere. I don't think I've ever seen so many merry people having such a good time, but without any of the usual annoying traits of the imbibed masses, and we've all been there. The Hitachino Nest beers are becoming more and more commonplace worldwide, and definitely worth a try. You can instantly recognise them by the owl on the bottle. They're all good, but the white beer is exceptional. So yes, number five, Hitachino Nest beer. Now that's Japan, but I also lived in Belgium, and I can't not have a top five beers without mentioning at least one, or maybe two or three, from Belgium. In at number four, the Takara Triple. Now back when I lived in Bruges in Belgium, there was a hidden gem of a place right in the middle of the town centre, almost hiding in plain sight, it actually took many attempts for people to find it sometimes. Degara, is it Degara or Dehara? I can never remember, I used to say Dehara. Dehara is hidden down a very small alleyway, situated between the Markt, the main square in Bruges, that generally throngs with tourists all year round, and the Berg. Actually, a little bit of history for you. The smaller Berg square was actually originally surrounded by walls and had entrance gates. It's one of the oldest parts of the city centre. The fortress was located at the meeting point of the Udenberg, Ardenberg, Roden Road. Udenburg, Ardenberg, Lieben, Glauben. Let's call it the Zandstraat. The fortress was around one hectare in size. Count Arnulf I of Flanders, 889 to 965. Yes, 8, not 18. And 9, not 19. This is a long time ago. He extended the Bruges fortress to create a powerful imperial administrative centre of one and a half hectares. Steen Castle, which was one of the residences of the Counts of Flanders, was located on the western side of the square from the 11th century until the end of the 13th century. The castle church, which was dedicated to Our Lady of Saint Donation, was built to the north within the fortifications, and a chapter of canons was later established. This gave the fortress a dual purpose. The southern part served a civil purpose, and the northern part was religious. When Bruges became a diocese in 1559, St. Donation's Church became a cathedral. Nowadays the square is surrounded by historic buildings including the former manor of the Frank of Bruges, the former civil registry, the civil hall, the basilica of the Holy Blood, and St. Basil's Chapel, and the former provostry of St. Donation. Some of the foundations of St. Donation's Cathedral, which was demolished in 1799, can still be seen in the cellars of the Crown Plaza Hotel. I've been down there, it's worth a look. Now there is a short street connecting the Berg Square and Philip Stockstraat. This is the Bergstraat. So back to the beer. I think Bruges in Belgium is actually a complete other topic for a complete episode. I had a lot of fun there. So, I'm talking about Estaminet, which is a tavern. Dehara lies hidden in one of the smallest streets of Bruges, in the shadow of the Belfry. It's a small and cosy pub that offers you different kind of beverages, including my number four, the exclusive. Triple van der Halle. Now once you find the claustrophobically small alley, climb a few old and well-worn stone steps, 
and you'll find yourself inside a highly regarded Bruges beer destination. The Harrer has been slinging fine brews and grub since the 1700s, making the old-timey ambience actually authentic and genuine old-timey. You can imagine what history the bricks and mortar have been privy to over the centuries. Tales and legends told from behind the foaming mouth of an ale-swigging denizen recorded in the dust now buried deep within the cracks of these oaken beams that span the expanse of the room. Local knowledge is a must to find this place, although I can also highly recommend the Brugge Bircher on, on Kemmelstraat as the ultimate gem in Bruges beer crown, but I will save that for another day. Back to Dehara. The hidden two-floor estaminet also stocks dozens of other fine Belgian brews, including the almost equally remarkable Struze Pannepot, which is a strong dark beer from De Struze Brouwers, a brewery in Oostvletteren, West Flanders. However, we are talking about the fabulous Triple Van de Harre draft beer, which comes with a thick floral head in a glass that's almost like a brandy balloon, and the estaminet will only serve you three of these, as they're a head-spinning 11% alcohol. Do not ask for a fourth, you will not get one. Even though you may feel ready to take on the world, you are not. The hefty 11% though, should not deter you at all, as it really is so smooth and does not feel or taste as strong as it actually is. It has a white pepper, pear and eventually toffee aroma that peeps through as you're drinking it. It's silky smooth, but the effects do hit pretty quickly, but seem to disperse equally as quick as they came. It's a beer hit and no doubt about it. I've had many an easy night, with some cheese and salami, washed down with a few triple van der Harris. Unfortunately, my apartment at the time was only a stumble away, and I just had to negotiate the archway in the Berg, a bridge across the canal, and I was home in a matter of minutes. Or hours, if I got sucked into one of the other hostelries on the way. So in short, go to Bruges, and sample the delights of the triple van der Harris. Oh, delicious. Let's stick with Belgium for number three. Celis White Beer another white beer, and the last one with Belgian links. My love of Belgium and its beers had to feature prominently here, and it deserved number three spot, although in other circumstances this could easily achieve number one. Celis is delicious. However, there is a twist in the tale. This is a Belgian style beer, and I actually discovered it while I was living in Belgium, but it is actually from Austin, Texas. Well, kind of. Now here is a tale of success and war that is bittersweet and a bitter tale of the citrusy, spicy, fruit delight that is Celis beer. Pierre Celis revived the Belgian-style Wit beer in 1965 in Hoogarten, then moved to Austin in 1991 to start the Celis Brewery, where the iconic Wit beer was being brewed amongst all his other beers like the Grand Cru Triple, Pale Bock and Raspberry. But back in 1996, Pierre Sellis in Hoogarten, yes it is that Hoogarten, revived the white beer, a regional beer style that had become extinct almost a decade earlier when the town's last brewery closed. Sellis' first brewery was in his father's stable. In 1972 he relocated to an abandoned soft drink factory, and by 1985 he was brewing 300,000 barrels a year. But his Hoogarten brewery burnt to the ground that year, and Sellis, who was underinsured, wound up selling his Hoogarten brand to the Belgian giant Interbrew. Yes, he created the world-famous Hoogarten beer. That monstrosity, now known as Anheuser Busch Imbev, continues to make Hoogarten to this day, but that is a very good beer. So, back to Celis. Pierre Celis, at the age of 67, then founded a microbrewery in Austin in 1992. At a brick tasting Celis, who spoke English haltingly, remarked that he chose Texas because its inhabitants speak with a slow drawl, making them easier to understand. The Celis White Beer received a perfect four-star rating from the British beer writer Michael Jackson in his Pocket Guide to Beer. Celis Brewery made several other varieties of beer in addition to the celebrated white, 
including, as I said, the Double, the Grand Crew, Pale Bock, Pale Rider, and the Raspberry Beer. Very tasty. And these types have actually been carried on by the Michigan Brewing Company, because the Cellus Brewery floundered after ownership was purchased by the Miller Brewing Company, and the plant was shuttered on the final day of 2000. In 2002, Cellus White and other brands were acquired by the Michigan Brewing Company in Weberville, Michigan, which continued to produce it until it closed in 2012. Sadly, Pierre Cellus died on April the 9th, 2011, at the age of 86. Actually, the Michigan Brewing Company was foreclosed upon and its assets sold at auction. Among the assets was the Cellus name, which had been acquired by Bobby Mason for Michigan Brewing in 2002. Sushil Tiagi of Craftbev International Incorporated acquired the Cellus brand. He said, I have been building a brewery with the Cellus family. We've already been building the distribution network. We're making all the plans for marketing and branding. The brand name repurchase is just the one missing piece. So on June the 20th, 2012, it was announced that the trademark for Cellus was sold to Kraftbev. On June the 25th, the Austin Business Journal reported under the headline, Family Brings Cellus Brewery Back to Austin. Christine Cellus, daughter of Belgian brewer Pierre Cellus, plans to use the existing facility to begin producing beer as soon as possible. The family had been developing plans for a new brewery for some time, and can begin to move forward since the family name had now been reclaimed. Christine Cellus said, now that we have the right to brew my dad's famous recipes under our own name once again, nothing can stop me from making that a reality. Early 2017, it was announced Christine Cellus had acquired the Cellus Brewery name and would reopen in Austin, Texas early summer. In June 2017, the Cellus Brewery reopened, a 50,000 barrel brewery, a tap room and a music venue to the public. In 2019, in keeping with the family tradition, the brewery entered Chapter 11 bankruptcy due to the fact it was over-leveraged and required double-digit year-over-year growth in order to service the huge debt. Now from the outside, Cellus's fall from glory is jarring, even tragic, yet it's sadly commensurate with the family's tumultuous brewing history. Theirs is a complex saga spanning five decades, two continents, and three distinct breweries bearing the Cellus name. At this moment, whether Cellus can pull off a fourth act remains as hazy as the unfiltered white beer. The brewery in Austin remains open to this day, as does the tap room, actually operating at 75% capacity due to the recent restrictions, so maybe there is still hope. But it is one of those beers that, in short, if you see it, buy it, drink it, enjoy it. It's a rare gem these days. Okay, let's move on to the top two, and this is very close. Well, no matter how far away from home you roam, there's always something of home in all of us. And this is one subject that I'm sure would clash opinions the world over. But sometimes there's nothing better than a pint of beer brewed in your home town. And in this case, I agree. As in at number two, Hartlepool's very own distinctive ruby red bitter from Cameron's, the one and only Strong Arm. Cameron's is a brewery established by John William Cameron in Hartlepool, County Durham, England in 1865. It is the largest independent brewer in the northeast of England, with a brewery capacity of 1.5 million hectolitres and a tied estate of 75 houses. It is one of the oldest industrial concerns in Hartlepool and has historically been one of the largest employers. After 100 years of growth through brewery acquisitions, the company had an estate of 750 licensed premises throughout the Northeast and North Yorkshire by the 1960s. 
The company subsequently struggled as the economy of its trading heartland suffered, and as it underwent a succession of owners with little experience of pub and brewery management. Cameron's then lost its independence to Ellerman Lines in 1974 and was acquired by the Barclay Brothers in 1983 and then Brent Walker in 1989. Brent Walker spun off the majority of the Tide estate as a separate company called Pubmaster, which was acquired by Punch Taverns in 2003. But Cameron's Brewery was purchased by Wolverhampton and Dudley in 1992, and they invested heavily in the brewery before selling the company to the local Castle Eden Brewery in 2002, who closed their own site in Castle Eden and moved all production to Cameron's. The company now has a relatively small tied estate, but the ninth largest brewery in the country. As a result, around 80% of its business involves contract brewing for other companies such as Heineken, which owns 24% of the company, and also Carlsberg. I remember in the old days going on a brewery tour there and seeing Hansa being made there. If you remember Hansa, you're as old as I am. Cameron's is known across the United Kingdom though for Strong Arm, a distinctive ruby red bitter, and it was launched in 1955. Total production of Strong Arm surpassed one. Oh, is that the werewolf? Oh. <laughs> Get down, Shep. <laughs> Get outside and go and have a shite. <laughs> no. Really? Is that what you really think about this podcast? We're talking about good beer here. Thank you. Oh, back again. You want a what? You can't have a strong arm. Right, now he's gone. Total production of strong arm surpassed 1 billion pints in the year 2000. Right, I'm off to deal with the dog back in a second. It just goes to show, whenever you're recording, shit happens. So I've released the house robots with lots of rolled up newspapers to take care of the mutt. Seems successful so far, hopefully no more interruptions. Just goes to show you, here I am in the desert lair, a million miles from anywhere, and a dog turns up and starts barking while you're recording your podcast. Okay, where was I? Yes, Cameron's. It's known across the United Kingdom for Strong Arm, a distinctive ruby red bitter launched in 1955. And the total production of Strong Arm, as I said, surpassed 1 billion pints in the year 2000. Actually, as I speak, it's my smell memory that kicks in the most. As a boy growing up in Hartlepool, and even today, there is nothing better than the pungent odour of molten hops that floats around the town centre from time to time. It's actually a bit marmite with the locals, as you either love it or you hate it. Personally, that and the sound of shite hawks overhead, seagulls to you, will always remind me of home. But back to the beer. The Ruby Red Ale is best served with a decent sized head. It has a rich toffee malty smell with a good balance of malt, hops and bitterness. It's a classic northern pint for sure. I guess I am biased towards this, but it is definitely up there in my top three things to do on any pilgrimage home. Of course fish and chips at Verrill's, a curry at the Dilshad and a pint of strong arm at the Causeway. If you know, you know. If you're visiting Hartlepool for some strange reason, do those three things. Although the Dilshad Indian restaurant did lose some character when they removed the enormous plastic tree from the middle of the dining area, but their chicken bastard is second to none. Now let's move on to the top spot. Now the top spot for me is entirely dependent upon location and of course the circumstance of the drinking I guess. If I'm in the UK and up rambling around the North Yorkshire Dales, then the undoubted winner is a pint of black sheep. As mentioned in episode whatever it was of this podcast, I think it was about six or seven. I don't know, I don't have a pornographic memory, so I can't remember. 
so I won't go through that whole story again. Ah, it was episode 9, he says looking at his show notes. And that one was entitled, They've Been Going In and Out of Style. So yes, Black Sheep for me is an amazing pint, and I've talked about that at length before. However, there's an equal number one. Because if I'm on a beach in the sun, then the crown goes to the one and only Philippines beer, San Miguel Pale Pilsen. Many friends of mine who have visited Spain tell me, San Miguel is definitely a Spanish beer. Well, I'm afraid to tell you, it is in fact a Filipino import. There is some Spanish influence, but it is a Filipino beer. Now, San Miguel Pale Pilsen is a Filipino pale lager produced by the San Miguel Brewery, a subsidiary of San Miguel Corporation, established in 1890 by the original San Miguel Brewery, renamed San Miguel Corporation in 1964. I actually live a stone's throw from the headquarters of the brewery. It was, however, a group of Spaniards who decided to open the first brewery in Southeast Asia, specifically in Manila. The factory produced diverse types of beer and derivative products under the name San Miguel. In the colonial capital, no one knew beer until then. For this reason, the inauguration of the brewery was an historic event and became known as the Day of San Miguel. I like the sound of that day. We should celebrate it more often. San Miguel beer was introduced into Spain by the San Miguel Brewery from the Philippines in 1946. The Spanish rights were spun off in 1953 by San Miguel Brewery and became an independent entity presently known as, and if you've been to Spain you'll know this one, the Mahu San Miguel Group. The San Miguel Escudo, the seal, used as the brand logo on all San Miguel branded beer products, is based on the original Spanish era coat of arms in Manila. It is also the corporate logo of the San Miguel Corporation and the San Miguel Brewery companies. The Mahu San Miguel Group does not use this logo for its San Miguel branded beers. Instead, it uses an image of a galleon as its brand logo. San Miguel Pale Pilsen is the largest selling beer in the Philippines and Hong Kong. It is also well known in Chinese markets and around Southeast Asia, and it's already starting to make inroads globally. In fact, my local basketball team in Mandaluyong are the San Miguel Beer Men. Great name. They are a professional basketball team in the Philippine Basketball Association, the PBA. The franchise is actually owned by the San Miguel Corporation, SMC, since 1975. It's one of three PBA ball clubs owned by the SMC group of companies, along with the Magnolia Hotshots and the Barangay Ginebra San Miguel. Ginebra and Beermen, huge rivalry. It is the only remaining original franchise in the PBA and leads the league with the most number of PBA titles, 23 to date. It is also the only team ever to have won at least one title in each of the five numerical decades of the PBA's existence so far. How did we get onto basketball from beer? It's very easy to do in the Philippines. But why does this beer make my number one slot? San Miguel Pale Pilsen is a pale golden lager with a rich full body flavour. Its smooth full flavoured taste complements its pleasant aroma of honey with a hint of corn or grain, making it perfectly suited to the tropical climates of the Philippines and a perfect beach partner on any tropical island. It's best served ice cold, under a mango tree or a coconut palm, on the beach in the sun, just whiling the day away. It's something that I dream of at the moment. Well, that was the top five. That seemed to get quite extended very quickly. Before I go, let's have a quick what have I been watching this week, or the last few weeks, without too much detail. I thought I'd do some quick recommendations. Here we go, I'll keep this quick. Firstly, The Dig, a nice Netflix movie about the excavation of the Anglo-Saxon site at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk, England. Give that a look. And moving quickly, I said it would be quick. Dead Pixels, 
season 2 has just commenced. Channel 4's comedy and well worth a watch for all you online gamers out there. Take a look at that, there's two seasons now. Teachers. I'm still working my way through revisiting this 1990s masterpiece, which includes Andrew Lincoln in his formative years, long before the zombie apocalypse. This also features an unbelievably good soundtrack, which is now an homage to the 1990s British music. Another one from last year, The Windermere Children, a biographical drama film written by Simon Block and directed by Michael Samuels. Now this is based on the experience of the child survivors of the Holocaust. It follows the children and staff of a camp set up on Calgarth Estate in Troutbeck Bridge, near Lake Windermere, England. This is a really good watch. It's quite traumatic in parts, shall we say, but it tells a fantastic true story. Moving on quickly, the epic Mandalorian Season 2. In my view, some of the finest Star Wars work to date. Need I say more? Just go and watch it. It's epic. Let's keep going. What else have I got? Oh, I watched The Wild and Wonderful Whites of West Virginia. Easy for you to say. Now this film focuses on the renowned West Virginia outlaw Jesco White and his eccentric backwards family. In addition to getting into trouble with the law, the Whites who live deep within the Appalachia, but they do uphold a time-honored dancing style, even while they're contending with poverty, drugs and other issues. Alternately humorous and sad, this movie is an unflinching look at life on the criminal margins of rural mountain culture. Now those would be my recommendations for this month for sure. Let's have a clip from the Whites of West Virginia. Oh, I'll just be watering the buck. I used to try a little coke here and there. I smoked a little crack, you know what I mean? I've tried this and that. My favorite buzz, choice of buzz, is marijuana. I love marijuana, I'm a pothead. Well, I'll tell you straight up what I like. I prefer a Roxy <laughs> Cotton, uh, a Lorset, a Norico, a Viking and Ez, a Percocet 10, a Xanax, especially a Zanny Bar. Right here, listen. You wanna hear the Boone County mating call? That really is a good watch. The clip does not do it justice. Okay, before I go, lastly, something else I watched recently about Peter Sellers, the comedy legend. It's a show called A State of Comic Ecstasy. This was broadcast last year to mark the 40th anniversary of the comic actor's death, and the documentary explores his career from early experiences on the variety circuit to his breakthrough in The Goon Show, before reaching Hollywood and becoming an international star through performances in films such as The Pink Panther and Doctor Strangelove. Sellers' second wife, Britt Eklund, provides insights into their turbulent marriage, and there is testimony from various ex-wives, relatives, employees, friends and family. It's a true insight into the comedic genius. In fact, I often revisit many of his recordings and radio offerings on Spotify. I've forgotten how funny he actually was. Let's have a little bit of Peter Sellers before we go. What now? Shh. Oh. 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 Yeah. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, Unchained Melody. Yeah! yeah! Woo! 
Peter Sellers as the voice of Blue Bottle in The Goon Show. I do feel that the, the movie Ghost would have been considerably better had they used that version, with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore at the Potter's Wheel. Anyway. Well, I think that's about it, really. I think we've definitely covered life, the universe, and everything again in this episode. Although I think I need to talk more about UFOs and alien encounters, because I didn't really do it as I went off on the beer tangent. That can be another episode for sure. So finally, let's have a quote to leave you with. I'm a bit late to this one, as it was Burns Night last month. But how about something from the one and only Robbie Burns himself? I quite liked this when I heard it. Cock up your beaver, and cock it for sprush. We'll over the border and give them a brush. There's somebody there we'll teach better behaviour. Hey, brave Johnny lad, cock up your beaver. Now in Barnsley, pubs have always been the talk of the town. But within my short lifetime, loads have been shut down. There used to be loads, but they're now like yetis. But it's town and we're proud of it, cos we come from Barnsley. Barnsley, Barnsley, cos it's town and we're proud of it, we come from Barnsley. Whenever life gets you down, Mrs. Brown, and things seem hard or tough, and people are stupid, obnoxious, or daft, and you feel like you've had quite enough, just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving, revolving at 900 miles an hour. That's orbiting at 90 miles a second So it's reckoned A sun that is the source of all our power And the sun and you and me And all the stars that we can see Are moving at 9 million miles a day In an outer spiral arm At 40,000 miles an hour Of the galaxy we call the Milky Way our galaxy itself contains a hundred billion stars It's a hundred thousand lights side by side It bulges in the middle, sixteen thousand light years thick But out by us it's just three thousand light years wide We're thirty thousand light years from galactic central point We go round to one hundred million years And our galaxy is one of only millions of billions This amazing expanding universe The universe itself keeps on expanding and expanding In all of the directions it can whiz As fast as it can go At the speed of light you know Twelve million miles a minute That's the fastest speed there is so remember when you're feeling rather small and insecure How amazingly unlikely is your birth And pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space Cause there's bugger all down here on Earth